if I fail on something, which I do all the time, you course correct. You try it again. You try option A, B, C, and D until you find something that works. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Moila, and today I am talking to Brad from... Welch Randall Real Estate. Welch Randall Real Estate located in... Salt Lake City. All right, Brad, let's wind the clock. For those that don't know, how did you get into the business? Uh, this is originally a family business, and I got in about 10 years ago. I made a vow when I was in college to never work for a small, small company or with family. Right out of college, I worked for a small company as a property manager, and I realized after four years of working there, I was delivering checks for him. I was doing a lot of the work, and I just thought, I need to, I need to get into ownership of real estate and also of a company. So I talked with my dad, who had a brokerage, and said, you know, could we work, could we potentially work something out? And so... Within five years of graduating from school, I had broken my two promises and it was the best best decision I could have made. What was your dad's view running a brokerage? What was his view of property management at the time? When he got into property management, it would have been right around 2000. And he, in the year 2000, you know, in our market, he had 30 sales agents that he was supervising. And Anybody that looked at property management, it was the definitely looked down upon industry. And in some ways, you know, you see that uh, I, that idea kind of still occurring around the country. But he felt like he really liked the recurring revenue aspect of it because he said, I know the market's going to go up and down. We'll probably have times where the agents, we have 10 agents or we have 100, but if we can get some recurring revenue, then that's the type of business I'd rather be in. So that's what initially pulled him mm. into property management. And for us in general, I mean, for me in general, the recurring revenue of PM is it's really what drives a lot of my interest in it as well. Well, let's frame the business where it stands today. How many units are you managing? Uh, just over 400 single family. And then we also have an HOA portfolio as well. Well, who doesn't these days? That's really just <laughs> the know. thing to be doing. It's it's growing quite a bit. That or short term. You're mm -hmm. either going to have sure. one or both. Or a maintenance company. Or a maintenance company, yes. So we have 60 communities with HOA. Mm. And then we've also started commercial HOA management. Uh, so about 4,200 units with that. Forgive my ignorance. I don't know what commercial HOA management Commercial is. HOA would be anything... Like a, say you, you rent or own a space in an office complex. Mm. If it is part of a condominium association, that group of owners pays dues. And then the management company helps collect the dues, maintain the property, snow removal, uh, landscaping insurance. So it's, it's similar to an HOA, but instead of the drama and everything with someone's house, it's someone's office or a group of owners that you deal with. Help me do some easy conversion from HOA to SFH. How many HOA doors revenue-wise are the equivalent 
of one single family door, roughly? I'd say the closest measurement, probably 10. About 10 to one. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. All right. So that's a, that's a decent size. So what do you think of yourself primarily as? Did you start with single family? Start Started with single family. We had, we took on four communities as a favor to someone. We've never actually advertised for HOA, mm. never once, but it's been referral to someone or referral from someone. And it grew from four to eight and now up to 60. Now up to 60. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how many units, uh, the 60 represents how many units? Uh, 4,200. 4,200. Great. Okay. So nowadays the staff size, the structure, portfolio, departmental, how many heads, offshore, onshore? Mm-hmm. So staff right now, we have an HOA department and we have our PM department. Our property management department focuses on the single family, duplexes, small multifamily. And we have four that are staff members in our office, brick and mortar office, or, you know, they work remotely part of the week as well. And then we have two remote team members for that group. For the HOA side, we have six managers, two office support staff, and two remote team members that work with that. Got it. So a lot of people talk about the distinction or the wall of separation that exists between single family and HOA. You would think that you're getting this leverage and efficiency, shared labor, shared resources, it would just kind of make sense. And yet when I interact with people that are on both sides of this equation, they're largely articulating that there is a pretty strong degree of separation. Have you found the same thing? I fully agree. I think I think for us, we try to do it all under one umbrella. And even though it's under the umbrella of the same company, we tried to have so-and-so work in two different departments at the same time, didn't work. The only place where we found reciprocity is on the admin side, which is done by remote team members. So we have some of our remote team members that are cross-trained on some PM tasks and some HOA tasks, depending on how much time they have in the day. But our team that is in our brick and mortar office and just in our hometown operation, it's completely separate. Mm. And so if you were going to just articulate the nub of the need for the separation, the activities are that disparate? Is it the cadence of the work? What drives that wall of separation? I think hmm, I think the cadence would definitely play into it. But I also think uh, just the general day-to-day tasks that need to be done are are different for the two of them and the the cadence would play into it but also just the the level of autonomy that you have with a pm contract for a single family home is different than with an hoa and with an hoa we sign a management agreement but the board of directors ultimately decides whether you're hired fired and legally, they have to decide a certain number of things in any given community. We can't write a contract that says, we get to pick this, 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 and this, and this, which we can do a little bit more liberally with a PM contract. And so what we have found with our team is we need more people in the form of a manager or a portfolio manager to interact with the board of directors or, you know, whoever is over that HOA to be able to get stuff done. 
Let's talk about the finance, finances of the two businesses in terms of yield, profit, bottom line. How do the two stack up? I think overall right now, uh, well, I don't even think. Our single family side is more profitable per unit without question. Part of that is just the conversion uh, of between how many units of HOA to manage for, for one single family home. But on the HOA side, you there are a lot of opportunities for ancillary revenue, just as there are in single family. And there are also a lot of plays that you can make to grow your PM business and to grow a brokerage business or to grow a maintenance business if you have those. Mm -hmm. So to me, the revenue from doing HOA management alone is not enough to make it worthwhile to keep the business intact. Wouldn't be interested as a standalone proposition. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, and, and I know that you can make it work if you can keep your labor low, if you can do more with remote team members or kind of like Scott Brady's setup, if you have agents that are making a cut of the property management fee and there's no insurance, you know, nothing like that, but keeping staff members with only HOA revenue sources, you can break even, make a little bit of profit, but you're not going to pull up profit margins the same as a single family company. Now, when you add in other resources and other sources of income, that's where you can start to see how the PM company and the HOA can play really well together. What is the HOA feeding in terms of these ancillary business units? So for any HOA, uh, you have certain things that always have to get done. And so, for example, we have a third-party maintenance company that can be the first line of defense for handyman projects around HOA. And right now, finding contractors is very difficult. It's tight labor market. Yeah, tight labor market. So you can build a revenue source through that. The next area is you can build HOA benefit packages similar to an RBP on single family homes. You can build a benefits package for HOA homeowners and for boards. So it can include everything from handyman work, uh, furnace tune-ups, uh, pest control, things like that. So you can build an economy of scale because you have access in our case to 4,200 doors. And they are, a lot of them are living in an HOA because they don't want to take care of certain things, mm -hmm. which means a fee-based service of 30 to 60 bucks a month, they are more open to because they've already chosen to live in a, a home that has fees attached to it. Mm. On the other side of that, if you build relationships on the HOA side, the opportunity for sales grows a lot because your company is kind of the trusted company within the community and so we will provide information about the market, information about what's happening in general. And then at the bottom, we give them a discount if they want to use us. Mm. We don't force it. It's just an opportunity there. But, you know, if we have an HOA that brings in, say, $800 of monthly revenue for a management fee, but then we bring in two or three sales a year sure. of brokerage revenue from there. It adds a lot. It adds a lot even though it's only a couple of sales. So our goal is to have a sale from each community each year, because if we can do that, the ancillary revenue from that 
more than covers, you know, a, a lot of our labor costs and it builds a much higher profit. What's the total transaction volume that you're doing in a year on the brokerage side, ballpark? Brokerage side, probably around 150 a year. Okay. That's, that's meaningful. And what is the, if you were to try and identify the threshold of dues, end user dues that correlate to it being enough money for the HOA to hire a third-party management company, how high do the dues have to be before for, for a management company to even be able to get involved? I would say probably around, I would say on average, right around 200 okay. are, are the dues. Now, if you have a community of 200 units and the dues are only 150, you can make it work. But our, our average size is right around 60 to 95 units. And so most of those are between about 185 and 225. Talk to me about the soft skills, the profile of person that you're dealing with that's sitting on a board that you're interacting with. What is the soft skills parity or delta between interacting with owners versus board members? The, what we try to focus on, the managers are meant to be the quarterback, the coach, the help for the boards. That's what we really like them to focus on. Now, in any given board, and I think in any given HOA, of the 100% of owners that you have, 10% are going to be the, the type that hate living in an HOA. They're living in an HOA because they're forced to, maybe economically, it's what they can afford in this market, but they hate it. And they push back on everything. You've got 10% on the other side that say, I want to police everything. And the management company isn't doing enough. You should be out here every day. You should be doing all of this. So when you get into a board, we try to pull from the other 80% because the other 80% are your standard, you know, usually 30, age 30 to age 50 that they want to help. They want to have their community be nice, but they're not insane. They're not, they're not one of the extremes, but in any given board, you can have five board members. And I'd say on average, we have one board member that's, that fits the profile of who you don't want on the board. Mm. And what we watch as a management company is if that starts to shift kind of like a balance of power in Congress or in the Senate, if you start to see three board members that fit that 20% profile, chances are our fees are going to need to go up exponentially. That's one way to look at it is to yeah. raise fees. So the, the 20%, the one in five, that is roughly proportionate represent, representation to their existence within the community. When you say you try and pull from, what influence do you have here on the board? Do you have the ability to influence who does or doesn't choose to step up to the plate? We, we have the influence in the sense that if we're interacting with people, that we enjoy interacting with. We can say, we, we really think you ought to run for the board. You'd be great. You know, your background suits the position. Well, we think this would be a great fit for you. Mm -hmm. We will uh, ultimately the community is the one that votes. So they're going to be the party that says, you know, the community will say we want them or we don't, but the management company and the manager in particular can focus and say, 
you know, I work really well with you or you helped with this project. We would love to, to get you more involved. And then what the management company can do is try to set up systems in place so that it's not overly difficult for a board member to participate. And those things are zoom board meetings, uh, having systems in place where they can approve everything online. So it's not a huge time commitment. And if a reasonable person can feel like the time negotiation or the time engagement is worth it, they, they can do it. And we try to set that expectation up front. How do you feel about the HOA as a premise overall? Somebody looks at the organization and believes that it's fundamentally pernicious. Other people believe that it's fundamentally value-added, but sometimes there's some overreach. What is the, what's the threshold in your mind of like, uh, value added, it's earning its keep, it's functioning well versus just raw, unadulterated overreach? I think it's very similar to how if you were to ask someone, what do you, what are your thoughts on government in general? Because an HOA is set up similar to what a state government or a, the federal government breakdown is. It's meant to be a group of resources or a group of owners that come together and through a democratic process govern their community. That's the premise, right? That's like the, you, you get into an HOA and this is what you, you want to have, but that's not what you hear about. I mean, the stories I post about HOA, nobody wants to hear a story where the budget was approved uh, unanimously. There was no drama. That's not the fun stuff. So on the government, on the, the government aspect of this, when you are working with an HOA, um, you're always going to have a certain group of people that is going to try to overreach. They're going to look at the CCNRs and say, we want to enforce everything. As no woodenly what. and literally as possible. Yes, literally. Even if it was written in 1965, we're going to enforce it. Then you have a group that says, well, I don't think we should touch anything. Don't do any, you know, don't, don't enforce anything. And the middle ground is where you actually get things done. And so to me, the real benefit of the HOA is if a homeowner were to look to have all of these services done on their own, it would be more expensive for them to do it in most cases. Mm -hmm. So the shared cost value is huge, but that's what you really want to try to promote is we want to try to build a budget that really capitalizes on the shared cost proposition because it's the other stuff that gets most of the attention. Hmm. Have you interacted with your peer equivalents on the HOA side? Do you go to CAI conferences or? I've been to two events on the, the just the national side. I've been to a couple local events. Uh, my experience with them is the, the vibe is very different than NARPM. NARPM is its own unique, you know, entity and but even on the pm side with single family uh we i could definitely be more involved but i do feel like the sharing level is not the same as what i've experienced uh, in groups like the the groups of property management company owners that i've interacted with mm. it's not the same hmm. well we we live in a unique ecosystem and you don't really know what you have until you compare it to something. Yeah. In terms of the interactions that you have with other property managers, what would you say your journey has looked like as a, as a business owner? How have your views 
matured? How has your identity around being an entrepreneur shifted from where you started to where you are now? I It shifted a, a huge amount. I would say when I first started in property management, my goal was growth. And I didn't care what door I would take on to do it. Because anytime I'd come to an event, the first question that would be asked was, what's your name? Where are you from? And how many doors do you have? It's hard to escape. It's a very difficult thing to escape. But where I feel like our focus has shifted and where my focus has shifted is instead of the how many doors do you have, it's, you know, how profitable are your doors? Are you finding new ways to find revenue sources for your business? How does your business support your lifestyle rather than are you just growing? And I mean, I remember a few of the NARPM events at the beginning. It was in group settings. It was, hi, my name's so-and-so, and and I have 5,000 doors. And people would just, you know, clap and everything like that. And I never fully bought into it because I just thought, well, good for you. That's great. But 5,000 doors could mean a lot of different things. Amen. And you've, you've had people on your podcast that have relatively very few doors, but are highly profitable. Mm-hmm. And so for me as an entrepreneur, if I look at the next five years, I want to focus on profit. I want to focus on revenue sources and ancillary revenue. And I want to focus on complementary businesses that I could build into it, um, such as the brokerage, such as a maintenance company, things like that that can help feed a profitable, you know, source of income. Has your business adopted the NARPM accounting standards? We are in the process of doing that. So we moved, um, we moved to a lot of the, the geo coding, everything like that, but we did not do the full adoption. And, and this is, it, it, it wasn't out of, we don't want to do this. It was more so out of, you have 10 different things that you can focus on. Oh, of course, sure. Which one is the most valuable? Sure. And if I could go back a few years, I would say, I wish I just would have started with it earlier and gone to, you know, some of these, some of this focus earlier. Hindsight is always, it's always easier looking back to say, do it, but we're in that process now of doing it. Well, let's be real. I mean, it's not but updating your your GL codes and your chart of accounts is not like the sexiest thing to talk about. Yeah. But ultimately, it's a stepping stone to the kinds of financial clarity that can lead to greater profitability. Mm-hmm. The conversation around profitability, around metric awareness, around unit economics in the industry, I think it has shifted over the last couple of years. Do you feel like that you've seen a shift in uh, what is held up and esteemed and and the level of financial acumen that's being discussed of in day-to-day conversations? Yes, I, I fully agree. And I think even as you go around to events like a NARPM broker owner or any of those larger conferences, you hear much more discussion, even from third-party vendors saying, by adding this, this is how much more revenue per month per door you can you can bring on to it. And I don't know if I wasn't listening as intently before, but I feel like the conversation has gotten a lot louder in mm-hmm. that regard. And you would know better than anyone regarding that because you've been very influential in that discussion really taking main stage. But for, for our company it is of really paramount importance right now. 
And what we're seeing is, and in full vulnerability, in full like openness, I am absolutely one of those company owners that I would look at my month end books, year end books, and I'd say, we're doing fine. You know, I've got a lifestyle I like, this is all good. But if someone then pushes me and says, well, what is your profitability on the HOA side versus your brokerage versus the maintenance company versus the PM company? It, that's where it would get murky. Mm-hmm. And so for me, if the brokerage, the maintenance company, the HOA and the PM company are not all profitable on their own legs, you know, standing on their own, then it's a very simple decision to say, we've got to either make it profitable mm-hmm. or make a shift. Mm-hmm. But until we look at those individual metrics and see how, uh, you know, what it takes to bring on a person and to actually bring on a door and to see how much you're paying someone and how that affects your overall profitability. I just never went into the depth that way because it wasn't sexy and it's not fun. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not enjoyable. I don't sit there. I don't geek out over that stuff, but I love what the data that it pulls. Mm -hmm. I love the summary of it. I just never was super intrigued to like dive down as much as I should have. I think the nuance here is the gap between finance and accounting. Mm-hmm. My accounting chops are so-so. My yep. finance uh, chops are strong. Finance is interesting to me. Finance is outcomes. Finance is organizational capabilities. Mm-hmm. Finance is analysis to diagnose the maladies within, within the organization that stand between me and my objectives. That's a rewarding conversation. Accounting fits in but really it's just like, it's a stepping stool that's necessary to have an informed finance mm-hmm. conversation. I think as we're seeing the industry kind of change and evolve, there's a lot of shifts. One of those shifts is that there's a lot more M&A activity going on right now. There's more companies that are coming into this space. There's consolidation, there's roll up. How do you personally reason and relate to the proposition of an exit within your business? Oh, I think I reason with it differently at on different days. And, and I know that's not maybe the best answer, but if I, if I don't have kind of my clear grounded, this is the ultimate vision for the company. This is the ultimate vision for the lifestyle I want. Then there have been plenty of times where I have come home from a late night of work or something like that. And I say, sell it all. Like, And don't sell it for me to work for it later. Sell it and exit. When I am in a more reasonable state and a more forward-thinking state, I see the consolidation happening. I see what's happening in the industry. And I'm not opposed to it necessarily. But I also think um, that it may not fit everyone's model and everyone's future goal for it. And is there a space in the market now and in the future for an independently run mm-hmm. profitable business i don't see a market where an ind- where a small business that's profitably run where there's not a space for it and i don't know that there's going to be one company that's big enough to to beat out every other competitor around and i know for our market the biggest thing that we're going after is the do it yourselfers And I don't, I think that's national as well. You know, there's so many people that do it on their own and there are people that I think will gravitate towards a really large company, especially if the cost is there, you know, if the cost is low, everything like that, 
But if you can have a company, whether it's large or small, that can provide the technology, the backing as far as the support, the experience, like what that looks like for an owner, and have it be within a range that they find value, then I think that company will still be around. So I know there's a lot of talk of consolidation. And as a company owner, of course, I want to know what a, a third party would value hey, me sure. at. Like, why not? Give, me a, give me a term sheet. Give me yeah, a- go through the process, everything that way. Whether it turns into something in the future or not, doesn't, doesn't matter. But it's worth having the conversation to see where somebody that's looking from a different perspective at your business, how they would value it. Hmm. But does it mean that it's the right fit for every company owner? No. It's interesting that I'd say as of late, what's shifted is that the FOMO has gotten ratcheted up a bit. <laughs> M&A has been going on for some time, but the the FOMO has really reached a zenith right now in Apex. And I think that some of that is derivative of folks wondering, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? And I want to give you a parallel. In the universe that I operate in, running a tech company, there's a couple of classic instances that just generate instant FOMO. The first is so-and-so competitor, they just raised a monster round of VC money or such and such buddy just had a big exit. Um, similarly, on the technology side, you see waves. And right now I think that the broad wave would be like Web3, crypto, mm-hmm. NFT, smart contracts, blockchain. All of that is absolutely at a an, an apex of public interest, an apex of smart, intelligent entrepreneurs saying, this is the way, this is the future, drop everything. And it does start to feel like hype and hyperbole and can can anything live up to the promises of something like that? And so I think that the feeling for me is when I see somebody really smart, get so excited about, in this case, Web3, something that I personally just don't really understand. Right. Like it's, it's, it is beyond my comprehension in large part because of my failure to invest my time yeah. in doing due diligence on the opportunity. But when that happens and somebody you know speaks well of it and goes all in, you know, it gives you pause. Mm-hmm. And, you know, without these voices, I wouldn't be thinking about this. Yep. But in light of these voices, I'm kind of wondering, it It does kind of make you do a bit of a, a, of a gut check. Do you have that sense that that's part of the dynamic going on in the industry right now? Absolutely. And just like you said, there have been companies around for a, a while. This isn't a, a new concept of rolling up, buying in, you know, and depending on who you talk to, it's a buy-in or it's a sellout. You know, it could be viewed very differently from a group of 10 people in a table and you could have a lot of different viewpoints on what it is, what that even looks like. Sure. Is it an exit? Is it a... I think it was PMI that originally coined the language, uh, not selling out, but yes, buying in. Yes, that's true. Not selling out, but buying in. But there is that piece of us, I think, as property managers that and company owners that say, first of all, well, what's the value I'm going to get if I join or if I participate? But then there's also that other side that says, but what am I going to be missing out on if I don't? Mm. It's that opportunity cost. And so there's, there's big discussion around when you have valued colleagues and friends and things like that, that's where it becomes real for a lot of us as owners, because you hear about people buying companies and everything, 
But once it's your friends saying, oh, I'm doing it and they're doing it and you should do it now. And once again, I'm not saying any of it's wrong. I'm just saying, I think right now there is definitely a fever pitch and, and a a lot of it, I I think there's definitely FOMO Mm. because I feel it. Sure. And, and to think of a, a larger company, that's a collective mastermind Everybody loves that con. Like, what a great concept. Sure. That's why we're here. That's why we're at events. That's why you join groups. That's why Profit Coach, all these things, you join a group that is therapeutic. You belong. They make your business better. That's a great concept. But, but I think you, for me, I have to take the emotional side out of it. And if it makes sense from, my own vision of what I would like our company to be and my own future, then yeah, let's have the discussion. Let's go through the process and let's see what happens. But if it doesn't, that doesn't mean you're suddenly irrelevant or that your business is irrelevant. God forbid. Yeah. The reality is NARPM is, if that's the case, NARPM is irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't see that becoming the case anytime soon, nor do I think that's healthy for the industry. What I do think is that when you're thinking about evaluating decisions, what rings true for me is that you can know the integrity and the wisdom of a decision based on the evaluation that was made with the facts that were at hand, mm-hmm. as opposed to a hindsight 2020 analysis, Yeah. i.e. we can reason about the wisdom of making a economic wealth management financial proposition to buy lotto tickets mm-hmm. before we buy the lotto ticket. Yeah. We don't need to see what does the scratch off say in order to determine whether or not that was or was not a good decision. Right. Right. And so I generally relate to any proposition where I will only know the answer to whether or not this was a good or good decision based on a series of other events that I cannot ascertain or predict there's inherently a greater degree of risk than saying, for example, for me right now, running my business, I like running my business. Mm -hmm. I'm happy running my business. It's working for me what I'm doing. So yes, if this, if my existing business was to completely implode, I may feel foolish in retrospect, but the reality is with the information that I have right now, this is a known quantity. And so I should be able to evaluate whether or not I am or not am not happy. And there are a lot of people who are not happy. Yep. It's not working for them. They're not making money. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're looking for some kind of a, of a, of a next leg of the journey. And there is nothing wrong with that. And I think this is a great option for folks that find themselves in that circumstance, but that's the heuristic that I would offer. If you're faced with the decision where you can only know the answer based on how things play out long in the distance, you just got to be aware of the amount of risk. Mm-hmm. It's a different. It's a different kind of kind of decision when that comes up. Yeah, and and I agree. But I think ultimately, if you are not happy running your current business, you at some point in your life you made the decision that you didn't want to work for someone. You wanted to do this on your own. It you have the flexibility to make it what you'd like, which I love. If, if I fail on something, which I do all the time, you course correct, you try it again, you try option A, B, C, and D until you find something that works and you surround yourself with good people to find ways that work. But if you can't find happiness running your own business, 
how would you ever be happy as an employee? I, I just don't, because the, the it's the grass is greener. You know, as an employee, you dream of, oh, I just want the freedom. Look at, look at the freedom you have. Then you run your own business and you realize that the business never sleeps. And so you have to have systems in place so that you can kind of find that work-life balance that works for you. Mm. Mm. But, but when you're not happy, I think if you're happy as an entrepreneur, but you are looking for a way to kind of exit, mm -hmm. this is a great option. And if you're happy as an entrepreneur, but you're looking to say, you know, I don't know that I want to be an operator anymore. Mm -hmm. I want to yeah, look at something. Yeah, absolutely. Huge opportunity. Makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I'd do but it. if you like being an operator and, or excuse me, if you don't like being an operator, you're probably not going to like, like being an employee. I don't think it's just going to magically shift by signing over to something else. I think the misnomer is the idea that this is all, this can all be reduced down to a series of rational financial decisions, as opposed to saying there's a globally superior financial opportunity that I am choosing to pass up because I have unique personal needs. Like for example, I want to call the shots. Yeah. What if me wanting to call the shots means I'm going to get 80% of the maximally best opportunity? Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Would that be yep. honest? Would that be where most entrepreneurs find themselves? Mm -hmm. The interesting dichotomy about entrepreneurship is that most people started here purely because they wanted to do it. And the pretense was that it was a great economic opportunity. Right. I don't know about what your experience was, but my experience was a smoking hole of financial loss <laughs> as I think about what I could have been making earning a wage in the free market. And here right. I'm making next to nothing for years. Mm -hmm. This is not rational behavior. And for some people it works out for others. It does not. So what drives that some, some quant algorithmic model that like informed me that it was going to work out. Now what drove me is cause that's what I wanted to do. Yep. I was just super into that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what you're getting at. Undoing that wiring, that mental wiring that's like back here, challenging. Yes. And for some folks, maybe they feel like they're going to be able to have the expression of that wiring in a new environment and maybe they they will. But I think that that there's nothing wrong with admitting that that motivation was chiefly what got you into the business and getting yourself in an environment where you're going to have that loss of freedom and control could come at a meaningful personal expense if it's not something you can let go of. I think that's just, a, it's an honest admission. At least it would be for me. It's, it's a very honest admission. And in every entrepreneur, I feel like there's a level of ownership pride. And sometimes that can hurt it can, it can be a flaw. It can also be a really big driving force. I think there is a competitive spirit in all of us that says, I am so glad that they're doing that. I want to figure out how to do it. And I want to add this to it. I want to, I want to do it a little bit better, or I want to find a way to make it even more profitable. And depending on what stage someone is in, if you are feeling, if you're still feeling hungry, then I think that's wiring that doesn't go away that way. And it's not that people that are buying into this are not hungry anymore, but their appetite has shifted a little bit to I'm buying into a bigger group and my role is going to be different and that's okay. You know, that's what they're choosing and that's great. But for me, 
there is a part of me that is, it is hard to give up. It's just wired in there. Mm -hmm. And, and it's what I longed for when I was in school. It's what I longed for when I was working for someone else. Yeah. And it's what drove me to say, I can work with family because this is a great entry into this industry. Mm -hmm. And it, and I said earlier, it was the best decision I ever made, not only because it got me into the industry, but it actually made my relationship with my own father the best it has ever been. That's amazing. Which I know, which was what I was terrified that it would break. Mm. And so all those things that drove me to say, I never want to work with family. I never want to run a small business. I am fully cognizant of the fact that my company is not going to be necessarily something that someone talks about like Google or anything like that. And I'm okay with that, you know, but can it provide a lifestyle for me, for my family, for the people that we work with and an experience for those customers and clients that we work with that's memorable mm. and meaningful? Mm -hmm. That's not a bad life. Well, let's be real. One of the most <laughs> dangerous things for entrepreneurs is chasing status. Yeah. Status, and this is, you know, not to get too philosophical, but among primates, one thing that distinguishes humans is the pursuit of status. In the animal kingdom, you don't see monkeys stacking yeah. up mounds and mounds of bananas and letting them <laughs> spoil and they can never eat them. That's a uniquely human impulse to have way more than I need specifically for the purpose of saying, you see that? Yeah. You see what I did? pretty cool, right? Uh-huh. That's a uniquely human thing and chasing that is really really challenging because every new trophy mm -hmm. puts you in a new club. And it's like starting off in uh freshman year basketball and then making it to JV and mm -hmm. then you're on the senior team and then you're in NCAA and each time you climb, all the accolades and rewards that you had previously are now worthless. Yeah. You, you now it's like the next level of, I mean, that's what I experienced. It's like, and I heard it said, somebody say it well, a guy named Jason Lemkin that I follow. He said, if you can get to a million in ARR, you can get to 10, you yep. can get to 10, you can get to a hundred. If you can get to a hundred, you can get to a billion. It's like, wow. On the one hand, exciting. On the other hand, it's an invitation to constantly dismiss your mm -hmm. achievements under the guise that when you get to this certain level, then yeah. you'll be able to have the relief, the celebration, the congratulations. And the reality is it never comes if it's not something you can give to yourself. If you can't appreciate yeah. it for yourself, somebody else's commentary isn't going to be enough. Yeah. Well, and, and it's like the, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said, comparison is the thief of joy. Amen. And when, when we are only comparing ourselves to our peers and to our competitors or even you, you listen to a, bro, a podcast and you think they figured it all out. None of us would be participating in this industry and in these types of events if we had figured it all out. Right. We're all trying to find new ways to do it, better ways to do it. And if we're saying we figured it out, we're lying. Yeah. You oh, know, totally. We're not Absolutely. being truthful. And I feel like as soon as I let go the idea that I had to have it all figured out, mm. running a business became a lot more fun. Mm. When people would come to me and say, what do we do here? And I'd say, I've got to figure this out. Now I say, I don't know, but what let's do you figure think? it out. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to do? Come to me with an idea or a solution and it has made it a lot more enjoyable. And that to me, I know our industry, a lot of people don't deem it as sexy and everything like that. 
but an industry that you can get into like this one, you don't have to have all these degrees in order to do it. Yeah. You it's like can zero barrier to entry. Yeah, zero barrier to entry. You can find ways to make it profitable. And in most ways, I'm the one keeping it from being more profitable, whether I like to admit it or not. Sure. I'm the one that's too involved with certain things and I can't let it go. But you can make it profitable. It can provide for your family. And maybe if you're in the tech industry or something, titles mean something because this level makes a certain amount. This level makes a certain amount just in general in corporate America. But in our industry, if you say, well, I'd like to make 300,000 this year as my salary, mm -hmm. you can figure out how to do it. Totally do. You can build that in. And that is, if that doesn't excite someone to say entrepreneurship is worth it, for, despite whatever cost, mm -hmm. I don't know what would. I could make 300K calling my own shots. Yeah. Not to say, and you know, surely there's someone making 300K doing very little work, but let's just say a more realistic premise. I'm working hard, mm -hmm. but I'm making that kind of money, but I'm calling my own shots. There's some satisfaction in being able to say, it was my idea. I had a premise. I had a vision. I tried things. I got slapped around. Yeah. I had to crawl through the mud, but I got here and I get, I get to enjoy the fruit of my labor. I agree that that is a really amazing aspect of our industry. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you can get robbed of if you are constantly in the pursuit of growth. And I've yeah. had friends and colleagues that had businesses that wanted to be small and profitable. And instead they were got to, you know, midsize and blew up. Mm -hmm. They couldn't just appreciate the thing that, that they, that they couldn't appreciate it for what it was. Yep. The ego required it to be more. And that probably goes, you talked about the cadence of a business and everything like that. I have found if I will slow down just a little bit, I can celebrate a little bit more. And I can celebrate with our team a little bit more. And instead of chasing a dollar figure or something like that, you have those metrics, you have those measurements and everything that way. But if you just slow down and look at where you've come in six months or 12 months, undoubtedly there's things to celebrate. And I feel like the, the celebration side, it helps build a company in more ways than just, it's not just a pat on the back. Mm-hmm the people buy into that people buy into the fact that, you know, they may not work for a fortune 500 company, but they're working for a company that is growing in its sphere and profitable that has an aligned vision. And that that's meaningful. You know, that's, we cannot take that lightly. I think it's a corollary to what you said about the um, making a good income. The idea that I could run a company with a world-class company culture and there's only 10 people here. Mm -hmm. I think that's viable. Yeah. I really believe that that is viable. If you take the time to slow down. Now the challenges come in, in layering the ambition on top of it. This goes back to the metaphor of I'm both the firefighter and mm -hmm. I'm the arsonist. When you're constantly trying to grow, you're, in, you're staying on the edge of your incompetence. The requirements for your team members are changing. Sometimes people feel like the rug is pulled out from under them. They were great here, but that thing that you were great at is no longer enough because we've shifted. Our needs have changed. Mm -hmm. It introduces more stress into the business. When you think about the operational practices that keep you sane, the 
single decision that allows you to avoid a hundred other decisions. What are some of the high level commitments and philosophies with which you run the business that you feel like were really axiomatic in giving you a better quality of life, quality of service, et cetera? I think the first one that comes to my head is at the end of the day, the people matter most. And if we lose a deal because we're compromising on a relationship that we've committed to or something like that, it's not worth it. Or if somebody says they're going to go with someone else other than us because they can save $10 a month. They are committed not necessarily to the process, to the, the people side of it. That's their decision. But I love people. I adore people. I adore relationships. And our company, we have a, a phrase that's around the office quite a bit that just says, we are in the business of building relationships. And property management happens to be Highly relational business. High, highly relational business. And that's what we do. But ultimately, we're in the business of building relationships. So if we can remember people first, that relationships have inherent value, and that you never know where a relationship will lead. And hmm. I have to remember that sometimes too. And I remember traveling once and my dad saying, you will see the caliber of a person by how they treat someone that can do nothing for you. Because I saw him drop 50 bucks on somebody that brought our bags into like a, a Hilton somewhere. And for, as a kid, I was like 50 bucks, like how, and he said, he didn't have to do it, but, but I feel like you really see how people, the measure of a person by how they treat people that are, I, I hate to say lower cause it's not lower but people that maybe can do nothing for you. Mm -hmm. So I think the people side of it is, is tough to, you know, to, to negate. I also think when I try to make decisions, I try to do it in a state of mind that is not, I try to cut out the ego as much as possible. And there's ego in running a business with, I mean, there always is mm -hmm. because you, you like to say, if something works, you like to say, take the credit, Hey, you know, that kind of, that kind of worked really well, didn't it? Right. Isn't that nice? You know, but the team is the one that implements it. You have found the idea or something like that. But as I'm making decisions, as our team is making decisions, if part of the rationale is I want to do this because it was my idea we got to cut that out. Mm -hmm. We've got to drop that. We've got to say, we're doing this because it makes logical sense. It makes the right, it's the right decision for us right now. And keeping the emotional side out of it or the ego driven side can be hard for me at times. Um, but I feel like that's something that definitely weighs in on the decisions that I make and that we make as a team. Um, and then I think the last thing, and this kind of goes back to the whole people focus thing is when all is said, when all is said and done, we are people helping people. And if that's with a maintenance request, if that's 
setting them up with 10 new properties to invest in everything like that. We're people helping people. And if we can remember that, then it, it takes out some of the temptation for making poor decisions mm, or mm. making even like irrational decisions mm. because we remember, does this actually help the people that we're serving? And if it doesn't, we need to figure out either how to, how to make it help them or we drop it. Mm. We need to drop it. I love your emphasis on people. And I feel like some people are going to hear that and it's really going to resonate with them. And other folks will say, will say, you know, it feels really soft. I'm just in it for the money. What I find matters in business is longevity, mm -hmm. consistency, stamina. And the cost and the price of stamina is doing things that you care about, that you enjoy, and that are meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. And I hear that coming through when you're talking about the people. So, you know, when I hear that, it, it resonates with me personally. But I also just, I recognize that to stay in this game in the long term, like you got to be working on things that you have a personal connection yeah. to. So I love the clarity that you have. I appreciate you coming on and uh, I look Happy forward to, to be here. getting the update. Let's, <laughs> let's end it here. If you could think of one resource for somebody that is newer in the business to consume, to learn and grow, what's been really impactful for you? One resource, I mean, I would say finding some like-minded people to bounce ideas off of, whether that's through an online mastermind, whether that's through a vendor that provides that type of resource. Um, but for me, I have some local people that I go to. I have some people that I meet up with at national events that I can, I can say, here's what went well, but more importantly, I can say, here's what's not going well. And they will hear and listen. And I wish I would have started that earlier. I kind of felt like I didn't have the right to try to jump into something like that until I felt like I was arrived as a property manager. Mm -hmm. And then when I realize that no one arrives mm -hmm. and if they feel like they've arrived, they're, they're fooling themselves, probably not anyone else. And so I wish in starting, I would have just said, I'm Brad, this is where I'm at. This is what I'd like to do over the next year. Who wants, you know, who could talk with me and who would help with me, mm. who would help me with that? I wish I would have done that more. And it's taken others kind of drawing that out of me. I am a naturally extroverted person, but I was very introverted in the professional industry at first. Mm. I am becoming more extroverted and people will say, oh, well, you've been doing this forever. I'm like, no, I haven't. And there's aspects of my business that are not going great, but there's aspects that have worked. Let's talk about both of them and how, how you can make it better. So I would say, be willing to be vulnerable enough to say, I would like to talk with someone and get some help and also provide help because mm. it's, it's very much mm. a relationship that all parties benefit if you're open and honest. And I think coming to events like broker owner are a great conduit to do that proximity. Yes. Just being in the presence. There's the intentionality to send the email, who do I contact? And then there's just being at the bar, like with 20 people like that yep. around you. I love the, the, the density and the environmental impact of that. 
I think that is about as close as you can get to a perfect answer. I love that answer and I appreciate you coming on. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jordan. Until next time. Sounds good. Hey guys, quick message on the lead simple front. We are hiring aggressively into a bunch of different roles right now. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager, customer implementation pilots, customer success associates, software engineers, all over the place. So my question to you is, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody that might be interested or a fit for one of these roles? You can see the full scope at leadsimple.com forward slash careers. Head of customer success, finance and accounting manager uh, are the ones that we are focused on the most right now, but I'd love to have a conversation about any of these roles. So if you have questions, you can email me at jordan at leadsimple.com to understand the scope, the depth, and to know if anybody in your network might be a fit. We are a live crew, highly competitive, a little bit nerdy, and we love to have a really good time along the way as we work. So if this sounds like a fit for somebody that you know, love to hear from them. Thanks, guys. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.